Okay, well, I know what you guys are all thinking. You are thinking to yourselves, I'm so glad I showed up today to hear about submission. <laughs> right, Rebecca? I know. <laughs> right in the front, too. <laughs> it's basically everyone's favorite topic here, including mine, which I, which is why I'm feeling super lucky that I got picked to teach this. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Um, actually, sarcasm aside, I think it's pretty amazing, actually, that we as women want to gather around a book that's thousands of years old and talk about submission and authority. Because these are pretty taboo subjects these days, aren't they? Many think these are old, like patriarchal ideas that are irrelevant or damaging. Yet here we are. It's the year 2022, and we have this passage before us. And I actually would argue that I think it's perfectly relevant to us, just as it was perfectly relevant to the readers of that day. So submission, rule, authority, obedience. I say let's talk about them because the people of God should be talking about these things. It's not taboo for us. And I know some parts of God's word are hard to hear. I already heard, I walked in and I've heard people being like, oh, this is a hard subject. I don't like this subject. Um, so did you cringe when you read this passage or roll your eyes? Oh no, here we go again. Or maybe submission brings up painful memories to you. Maybe it's convicting to you. Uh, maybe it's just confusing. You have no idea what it means. Well, what better thing for us to do than sit at the feet of Jesus and learn about it? Because he's the teacher and actually he is our prime example of what it means to submit and obey and rule. And Jesus is the focal point of history, and he's the reference point for all of our obedience. So that's why we look to him. But to get started, I want to start with three notes, things of note to, before we start. Um, the first thing is we're jumping in right into Ephesians 5, and it is uh, connected to Jenna's teaching last week. So if you were here, she was talking about the section on spirit-filled living, and this is just a continuation of that. So there's a contrast being taught here, the way of darkness versus the way of life, uh, light. And walk in the light, Paul says in uh, chapter 5. Don't be foolish. Don't get drunk. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And he tells us how. We sing to one another, we give thanks, and we submit to one another. So our passage is just showing how we submit to each other in specific roles. The second thing to note is that there's a pattern here. When we take a quick bird's eye view, there's a pattern going on. And even if you didn't do your lesson for the week, um, hopefully when you heard it read, you could hear the pattern. And it goes like this. There's a, a command given to someone who's in a subordinate position, and it tells them to submit or obey. And then it gives them a reason why they should submit or obey. Next, there's a parallel command given to a person over them. And the command isn't to exercise authority, but it's how to exercise authority. And finally, there's a reason given to them for why they should exercise authority in this way. So that's the pattern. And it's important because it it's good to notice that all are given commands. So women and children and slaves are not being targeted here. Sometimes I wonder if people ever notice that the commands for husbands and fathers and masters might be a little harder to actually do. 
The third and final thing to know before we start is that I'm not going to be able to get into specifics on everything or cover every verse. It's, there's just too much here. And even in a moment of exasperation, I texted my husband and I was trying to figure out how do I fit everything in? And he texted back and he said, you aren't writing the definitive word or counseling each woman in her unique circumstance. You're laying the basic groundwork. And I texted back and said, well, what I'm doing right now is staring at my screen and eating M&Ms. <laughs> this is really hard to write. Um, but he's correct. There just isn't enough time to get into everything. And I know that there are really hard personal things people are going through in this room or who are listening. So if you have any questions about it specifically, go to James. Ask him <laughs> or me. Um, but at, with those points out of the way, we're going to just dive into the passage. So look with me at um, 522. And we're, Paul breaks it up into three sections, the biggest one being the largest, and then the other two are small. So we're going to follow his lead here, which that was a submission pun. So, and we're going like, to spend most of our time in the first section. So 522. <clears throat> Wives, submit to your own husbands. So Paul is opening the door to the homes of the believers in Ephesus, and he's touching on things that are really personal and really countercultural for them. So he's calling wives to submit not to every man, but to their own husbands who they have joined themselves in marriage with. What does it mean here to submit? It means to put oneself, oneself under the authority of another. <clears throat> At the heart of submission is this notion of order in the family. In the Greek, the verb used for submitting highlights submission as a willing act. According to one commentator, commentary, it says, it's an appeal to free and responsible persons, which can only be heeded voluntarily. So how do wives submit? As to the Lord, it says. We'll see this phrase repeated in the passage, and so it's saying that wives willingly put themselves under the authority of their husbands, because this is the very way she actually serves the Lord. Why do they submit? Because the husband is the head of the wife, it says. He has the rule. He has the authority. So we see an order beginning to become clear of the husband is the head, the lead, and the wife uh, over the wife, and the wife is under, following her husband. Well, what do we do with that? Like, how do we specifically follow that? How do we flesh it out in real life? We might wish for more specifics here. Just tell us exactly what to do. Well, thankfully, for us knuckleheaded wives out there, like me, maybe not you, we're given a concrete example of what this submission looks like. Maybe it's not the example we prefer, but it's what's here. And it should be familiar because verse 24 says, wives submit in the same way that we that the church submits to Christ. So Paul's already spoken about the church in chapter 1, he talks about Christ as the head. And he became the head over the church because God put him there. God raised him from the dead, it says in chapter 1. He sat Jesus down on a throne to reign over the church that he just died to save. So Jesus was given the authority over the church, over the people of God. So he, we are his body, and he's our head. That's maybe an easier relationship to understand. So wives in this room, some questions for you. Have we put ourselves under the leadership of our husband? Do we shelter ourselves under his protection? 
Do we look to him to guide and instruct us? We do that as church members. Why not as wives? Following someone doesn't mean you got the short straw. Wives don't just happen to have a bad lot in life. They weren't given the lesser role. Oh, but you don't know my husband, you might say, or mine isn't a believer, or I'll follow him when he starts loving me right. But listen up, our obedience to God is not contingent on the obedience of others. I probably say something similar to that 10 times a week to my kids, but I need it for my own heart too. And I know for many there's pain here in relationships, either in a current situation you're in or in a past one. And I also know that even in loving marriages, there's a lot of tension and strife just in making decisions and working out your daily life. But isn't that what the curse said would happen in Genesis 3? It says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That characterizes my marriage sometimes. <laughs> this battle for control is not the way God intended things. So I want to just say, put it out there, that this command does not mean you obey your husband. It does, it's not the same as obey. It does not mean you are a doormat or inferior or an equal to your husband, nor does it excuse abuse or following him into sin. None, nothing of what Paul is writing even suggests any of that. Marcus Barth said of this passage, the submission to and respect for the husband is by no means the submissiveness of a pussycat or a crouching dog. Paul is thinking of a voluntary, free, joyful, and thankful partnership as the analogy of the relationship of the church to Christ shows. So there is a godly way for us wives to obey Jesus while following the lead of our husband. So the wives of Ephesus must have needed this, and I think we need it too. So verse 25 shifts to husbands. Is this command surprising to you, to anyone? Husbands, love your wives. Not husbands, rule over your wives. Or husbands, lead your wives. Love. If there's any doubt what Paul means by this kind of love, he's really clear about it. He goes to lengths here, and actually he does kind of a switcheroo. He tricks us into a theology lesson. We think we've come here to talk about husbands, but he's going to teach on something even greater. And he's, he's saying, do you want to know what this kind of love is like? Study Jesus. He's the ultimate example. So look at verse 25. Love Jesus, or love as Jesus gave up his life for the church. He sacrificed for me and you, and this is the kind of love that God wants wives to be loved with. We have benefited from this love as believers, haven't we? Jesus gave up his life for us. Do you see all the things that Jesus did for the church? It's in this very same way that the husbands are called to love their wives. And I think that husbands have a bad rap, their role. Wives were told to submit like the church submits, while husbands are told to lay down their lives. I think they have a heavy task on their shoulders. So not only does the husband have the responsibility of the direction of the home, but he has also has the job of daily giving up his very self for his wife. And we see in 28 and 29 that this love is not just sacrificial, but it's nourishing. I love this picture. The husband is supposed to love his wife like his own body. He already loves his body. We all are con constantly concerned over the well-being of our own bodies, aren't we? We do everything we can to personally protect ourselves. It's natural. 
And so this picture of Jesus loving the church by nourishing and cherishing is a good example for him. And it's a beautiful picture of how Christ loves us. Do we come to church and do we need feeding? Do we need care? Well, Jesus is here to meet our needs. He loves us. And I think this is just such a great picture of the kind of love women should desire, right? Like leading, loving, nourishing, cherishing. This kind of love is attractive, and I think it kind of redefines the world's view of the sexiest man of the year. <laughs> and it's amazing how Paul goes back and forth between these teachings on husbands and wives. He's doing something here. He's teaching us two different things at the same time. And it seems like he's using one, this is really important, he seems like he's using one example, Christ in the church, to explain marriage. But actually, he's hijacking the discussion of marriage to explain Christ and the church. I'll explain that. So back in the Garden of Eden, when God created husbands, or man and women, man and woman, he said they're going to leave their parents and become one flesh. That's a, that's a quote from... So God, way back then, was instructing on marriage. But he was also pointing ahead to something else. And so we find out in this passage that Paul didn't just come up with the Christ church analogy to help us understand marriage better. It actually is saying God created marriage, designed it before the world began, so that it would be an example of what Jesus was going to do for the church. So you see God's people, Israel, they're commonly, the, the Old Testament, if you're reading through the Old Testament, commonly referred to as the bride of Christ, or the, the bride of God, um, Jesus changes this, and he speaks of the church as his bride. Now, Heather Bell told me that she thinks this is, this is a really weird analogy. So, Heather, this is for you. I'm going to explain it. So, we think about a wedding. We all dress up. We bring presents. We show up at the right time, and we sit, and we wait, and the doors open in the back, and we all crane our necks to see this beautiful bride walking down the aisle. And she looks amazing and radiant, and we're all, there's just so much joy in the room. But we didn't just come to the wedding to see a beautiful woman dressed in an expensive dress. That would just be like a fashion show. We came because of what waits for her at the end of the aisle. It's the groom. She's walking down the aisle towards someone, and that's why we came. We are witnesses in weddings to something huge. Two people standing before God and saying they will covenant together, leave their parents, and become one flesh. That's the entire point of a wedding. So every marriage of man and woman mirrors a greater cosmic redemption story of Jesus uniting himself with his children, making a covenant that will never be broken. And this covenant will be celebrated in heaven in a party more joyous and grand than all of the marriages that were ever happen, ever happened on this earth. That's why it's a mystery. And so while we wait, all eyes are on this bride, the church, watching us. We want the world to see the groom. We want them to see Jesus in his loving, sacrificial glory. And so our marriages should do just <coughs> that. Now, I'm here today just to teach women. There are no men I'm teaching. So I'm not instructing them on how to flesh this out. But to us... I would encourage us to consider just a few things. First, if you're not married, consider carefully who you might marry. Would they be this kind of husband? 
Would they daily lay down their life for you? Are they going to cherish and nourish you? Will they lead you in love? The second thing to consider is if this is not a description of your husband, pray for him earnestly. His role is really hard. Leading is difficult and the sin abounds. He needs grace and he needs God's help. And he might need to repent and he might need to see a pastor or a counselor or an elder and talk about it. But I can encourage us to do our part and our part in following him is showing him who Christ is by how we submit. So to sum up this section, when husbands and wives are working hard to live out their roles, they imitate God and they shine his light to a dark world because the mystery of marriage leads to some points to something greater and it's vital. It's a vital calling for all of us who are married. So moving on because of time restrictions, I'm just going to briefly touch on the last two sections. So children and fathers, look in six, one to four. Now Paul addresses two other household members, children. They're told to obey. And unlike the voluntary partnership expressed with the wife, the Greek command here is to children denotes absolute obedience. So it's very different. This obedience is right, the Bible says. It's the way God has made things. And it's actually one thing most cultures have agreed out on over the history of the world, that children need to be under parents. They need care. They need help. And most importantly, in God's ordered world, they need to learn how to follow. So Paul is addressing, imagine him addressing children in the room, sitting next to their parents in Ephesus. And so he goes back to teachings in Exodus and Deuteronomy. He says, this is the first commandment given in the Bible with a promise. Um, and it's a promise that all may go well with you and that you will live long in the land. And John Stott in his commentary explains it this way, that what is promised is not so much long life to each child who obeys his parents, but it's social stability to any community in which children honor their parents. So some application questions we can ask ourselves as parents. What kind of or as women here, what kind of children are we to our parents? Obviously, we're no longer under their authority, but do we honor them still? Are there things we need to repent of, ways we did not or currently are not honoring our parents? Next, Paul addresses fathers. Don't exasperate your children, he says. Don't provoke them to anger. Paul seems like he might be addressing fathers specifically because fathers are the head of the home. Fathers, he says, exchange provocation for instruction and proper discipline. Children need both, and exasperating children just doesn't do anyone any good. And these instructions are good for us mothers in the room, too. What makes up most of our interactions with our children? Is it harshness? Is it our opinions of how we think that they should behave? Or is it instruction and discipline of the Lord? This is a different way to look at parenting than where the world looks at it. And what's interesting is it's always been the way God's people cares for their children from the beginning of the Bible. Raising children should include discipline. It should include teaching our children obedience, but it also should be marked with gentleness. Is this how you parent? Is this how your husband parents? If not, pray for God's help. Seek his wisdom. Lastly, in verses 5 to 9, we're going to talk about slaves and masters. So bond servants aren't really the norm these days in our society. 
But one of my sources of knowledge on this tricky passage, my husband explained it this way. So I was trying to think of how do I talk through this? He said, back then slavery affected every area of society. You had slaves who were ranking government officials or had status within households. They were everywhere, many of them voluntary and often for a set period of time. So what Paul's doing here is not really commenting on slavery. He's teaching how these new believers can live together in the current context of their lives. So the, in the Ephesian church, you could also imagine servants and masters sitting next to each other, worshiping right next to each other. So how are they going to go home or go to their workplaces and treat each other? Well, Paul says, obey your masters as you would serve Christ with fear and trembling, not cowering or frightened fear, rather respect and reverence and understanding the status of the one you serve. And verse six actually calls them bond servants of Christ. You think you're bond servants of men, but you're bond servants of Christ. They're true masters, Jesus. So serve well this earthly master who is equally under the authority of Jesus. Obey as you're obeying Christ. It's a significant picture that we keep seeing of what it means to be under someone. And isn't this the kind of servant you would want? One who doesn't just work in a way to please you, but behind your back actually hates you. Rather, they work with a sincere heart. They render service with goodwill. Why? How? How can he do this? In verse 8, it says, because he knows that whatever good he does, the Lord will return to him. And masters aren't off the hook here. They're to treat their servants with the same goodwill from a heart overflowing with sincerity. Stop your threatening, Paul says, because you actually both have the same master. And wouldn't you want to have this kind of master, one that leads you and rules over you with goodwill as if he's obeying Christ? That's what I would want. Now, today we don't have slaves or masters in our part of the world, but we can gain wisdom here on what it means to be a worker and a boss. This should transform the workplaces if there are Christians in it. Is your workplace different because of you in a good way? If you have employees, is this how you treat them? Consider these things because the world is watching and the world needs to see obedience and authority being used in godly and right ways. So to close our time together, I'm going to give you one encouragement and one personal example. So first, I want to encourage you to remember who the enemy is. Some of these commands might seem overwhelming or impossible. And they might make you feel afraid. Or maybe they're just painful because you're in a specific relationship right now with someone like a boss or a parent or a child or a husband. But I want to encourage you with what we're going to learn next week. Ephesians 6, if you look ahead, shows that all the strife we face in this world is not flesh and blood. It's not a battle of flesh and blood, but it's a battle of the spirit, the spiritual one. So remember who the enemy is. It's not your child or your husband or your boss. It's Satan. And in God's kindness, we are given weapons to fight him that we'll learn about next week. The world wants you to believe that the enemy is the oppressor in front of you. They want to believe that you to believe that you need liberation that you need to be in charge, that you need salvation from the rule of others. But next week we'll learn that God gives us all we need to walk in love, to fight sin, and to endure difficult relationships and circumstances. Do your homes need peace? Do you lack faith to follow God's hard command commands? Well, the true enemy is real. Remember, 
but, and he's strong, but God is stronger. So the people of God are to be like a beacon that shows that love and sacrifice and submission and obedience are good. And may God give us all the strength to do this. That's my encouragement to you. Now I'm going to share a personal example of someone who shined this light for me and helped me understand Jesus better because of her life. And this person's my mother. She's a beautiful example of submission to a husband who was a very bad example of godly sacrificial love. I saw her follow my dad, love him and serve him, and try her best to be a godly helpmate. She was not perfect, but she was persistent. She gave up herself for his sake, and she showed me that following her husband was something you do because of Jesus, not because he's worthy. She's faithful because God empowered her to be so. My dad did not follow Jesus most of his life. He died six years ago, but a few, a few years before that, he slowly became a changed man, knowing Jesus and loving him. And I think my mother, in her obedience, was a light not just to me, but to my dad, who needed to see the beauty of God's authority. So I wanna be like my mom, faithful to God to obey his commands. And that's my encouragement to you, is that we would be women who shine this beauty to a watching world. So let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are so gentle and patient and kind with us. These are hard commands, but they are full of life and freedom. And we thank you that you are faithful to help us. And I pray that you would be with us, be with us women who want to follow your word, who want to love our husbands and follow him, who want to parent well and honor our parents, who want to live in the workplace honoring you. So help us, Lord, by your strength. Amen.